Welcome back to the Devin Nunes podcast today, coming to you live, always on Rumble, always on True Social. And we have good friend of mine, good friend to conservatives all across the country. Uh, and we are just honored to have Dinesh D'Souza today. Dinesh, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Devin, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And look, we were just chatting before we got going here, but um, your son-in-law is uh, running for Congress. Uh, Dr. Uh, Burgess, Congressman Burgess is retiring there outside of uh, outside of Texas. And I've uh, met your son-in-law. He's also on uh, on True Social and uh, he's doing well, right? Yeah, he's doing uh, tremendously. He's uh, it's a red pro-Trump district, the suburbs of Dallas, the so-called Denton Flower Mound area. And the Trump endorsement, obviously, was going to be critical. But he also has some Texas congressmen behind him, Troy Nails, Ronnie Jackson, who has the neighboring district. Uh, Brandon, um, my son-in-law, just got back from D.C. He's picked up the uh, Jim Jordan endorsement. So I would think I think it's fair to say that he's the front runner. He's well funded. He's got his signs up all over the district. He's <laughs> 29 years old. So, you know, he's you're not going to find a more hardworking guy. And I yeah. think also importantly for our time, he has absolutely no skeletons. He's a unbelievably clean cut kind of sweet kid uh, and yet uh, very uh, solid in his beliefs. Yeah, well, and your daughter is just a amazing young young lady. I had the opportunity, I don't know, gosh, 10 years ago, I guess now, uh, to have dinner with you and your wonderful wife and, and daughter. I don't I can't even remember what the what the purpose was, but um, but I know that um, uh, you're very proud of her also. And I'm sure she's, I mean, she's a great conservative too. So, so I think the odds are that your son-in-law's conservative is probably, you know, pretty high, huh? Well, they, you know, interestingly, they met at Dartmouth and uh, he was the head of the Christian union. So at that time he was a little more involved in Christian stuff and, and a little bit less in politics, but I think they got fired up when they saw the radicalism of the left and mm -hmm. both of them, you know, just became very repelled by that. Uh, and have now jumped into the fray. The other thing is they they enjoy the political life. So, you know, going door to door and meeting people, something that I guess most people probably would find a little stressful or a little difficult or even painful. Uh, these guys love that kind of thing. So I, I think they're they're going into the right line of work and, you know, something yeah. you know a lot about. Well, you know, it's, you know, also, you know, the fact that it's just more, you know, just another example of, conservatives leaving blue states going to red states like i know you know you did so many years ago uh you know true social you know tech company startup uh we're not in california we're not even anywhere near california even though i mean that would have been a great fit for me right i i born in california raised in california represented california uh but the last place we were going to headquarter uh, true social was going to be uh in uh, in california we're we're in florida as you know um, but, uh, but Dinesh, I remember, I mean, you, you know, you talking about, as a matter of fact, I, what you've been there, what about 10 years now, I think, or so, huh? Uh, yeah, actually Debbie, my wife was, uh, originally Venezuelan, but she came to America at the age of 10 and she's lived in Texas really all her life from, from that young age. Uh -huh. And, uh, we, we married in 2016, um, and, uh, we bought a house in, uh, the suburbs of Houston and so we've been here uh, ever since, and it's been great. I mean, I thought I would, I was right on the ocean in La Jolla, and I thought I would would miss all that. California, of course, remains, I think, far and away the most beautiful state in the nation, but it's also one of the worst run, and uh, it's there's a certain kind of comfort to being in Texas. Yeah, no, and we're, we're going to, you know, every week on this show, there's something crazy that happens in California. We're going to get to that in a little, in a little bit. Uh, with the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, but there's a lot in the news, Dinesh. But um, you've got some exciting news. Um, you know, you're you're always on the cutting edge, uh, whether it's you know with films like like Police State, um, which I was able to go to the premiere at Mar-a-Lago a few months ago. Uh, but also this Red Referral Network, um, which I which is your new uh, kind of you just launched it, right? Yeah, it's a friend of mine, a, a guy named Chris Widener, and I had met him through um, a speaking tour called the American Freedom Tour. Uh, and Chris is just a very diligent entrepreneur. And he came to me with this idea. Uh, and the idea is to uh, create across the country 
um, locally in various towns and cities, networks of conservatives who not only kind of meet and socialize and get a sort of political uh, education and express political solidarity, but they refer business to each other. Um, and I thought, well, that's so interesting because, you know, so many of us these days do not want to give our business and our money to people who are going to use those profits to then turn around and attack us, attack our values, corrupt our children and so on. But in general, it's a hard thing to do because it's hard to start your own university. It's hard to, uh, you know, start another Amazon uh, it, because it's hard to start your own Netflix. But uh, it's not hard to say to people, let's just say in Tulsa or in St. Louis, hey, listen, if you come together uh, and meet once a week, and then you've got a real estate guy and you've got, you know, a guy with a plumbing business and you've got another guy who's in financial services, refer business to other people inside your own network. And these are people you get to know and like. You know, when I came to America, I came uh, as a Rotary Exchange student. And, um, and, and I was kind of curious because I didn't know a lot about Rotary. And yet here they were sponsoring me on this international exchange program. And I noticed that there were Rotary networks all over, not just the country, but the world. Um, and when you ask these Rotarians, but like, why do you join Rotary? At the first glance, they would say, well, we do a lot of civic activity. We adopt a highway. We have the exchange program. And I thought, really, are people all around the world joining an organization to clean up the highway? Um, and then I realized, no, that the real purpose of Rotary is it's a referral network. Business guys get together. They refer business to one, again, to one another. So it is not only a, a, a chance to sort of be in a social circle, but it's also a chance to make money. And that's what I liked about the Red Referral Network. It seems to me a very practical kind of idea that it's that is being launched now through Chris Widener. And I said, hey, listen, if you guys need somebody to be a sort of political guru for this organization, I'm thrilled to do it. So that's my role. And redreferralnetwork.com is the website. Yeah, and you, you know, look, Dinesh, you are a, an entrepreneur. Not only are you, you a thought leader in the conservative movement, you have been for a very long time. Um, I've told you the uh, several times about uh, you know my daughters really enjoying your some of your uh, earlier uh, films, uh, and you know, and you just continue to push out these films. You're always uh, looking at ways and avenues to to help the patriot economy. This is just another example of that, and of course, you know that our goal uh, at True Social is to build that wide open highway for the parallel economy to ride on, to ensure that people cannot be shut down. And we work closely with our, our partner, Rumble, who you are very familiar with. You were one of the first uh, first uh, uh, guys to go over to, to Rumble. Um, and when you start to look at that, that highway where we're, we're creating, if you take Rumble, where they've got the cloud now, the advertising center that, that, that we use, we beta tested those and, and we fully deploy those here at True Social. Then they've got the YouTube alternative. They have the alternative for the small to large content creators like you, Steven Crowder, uh, who are utilizing uh, locals to, uh, you know, to have you know, a, a spot where people can subscribe to you. Um, you were one of the first to, to to do that also. Then you move over into True Social where, you know, we're guaranteeing that, you know, for social networking, that uh, you're not going to get censored or shadow banned uh, on our platform. And we're trying to go all the way to make sure that, you know, documentaries uh, like you've done and films that you've done will have a home uh, because, you know, I know how hard it is for a lot of this conservative family friendly content to get a home on uh, on Netflix or you know Disney or Amazon Prime, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Devin, if I can throw out an idea along these lines, you know, we we found with Police State that uh, something that hadn't happened to us in the past, which is that Walmart and uh, Amazon both refused to sell our DVDs. It's extremely yeah. strange. Walmart sells millions of products. So does. So does Amazon. It's normally very easy for any vendor to say, hey, you know, I got some widgets, put it up on Amazon, no big deal. So it takes active intervention on their part to go, no, we won't take this product. And they don't give you a reason. They don't, they don't say, oh, there's been a fact check. Somebody's questioned your claims or nothing like that. There have been no fact checks. Nobody's questioned our claims. Nobody claims anything in the film is remotely inaccurate. 
and yet yeah. they just don't want to do it, so they won't do it. And that does mean it is it is not just a luxury; it is an imperative that we build this parallel economy. And so, our big challenge these days is we know how to get films in the theater, but we need to make it really easy for people to watch films online, particularly older people who don't who find it difficult. If you tell them, "Hey, listen, you've got to you know download the app and you've got to do these seven things," they they give up. They they they're easily scared away. But if you can tell them, hey, come on, true, you know, come up, come on, truth social. Here's a little button. Click the button. Put in your credit card. Click it again. You can watch the movie. Uh, it's that kind mm -hmm. of ease that I think is really going to open up this parallel economy. Yeah. So, Dinesh, I was. Uh, we're talking to Dinesh D'Souza, uh, conservative activist and, and entrepreneur. Um, uh, thank you, all of you who are tuning in live to Rumble right now. For you have some questions, make sure you put them in the chat. We'll, we'll try to get to them. Dinesh, this morning uh, in, I was in Sarasota to, uh, talking to just, you know, folks uh, having a cup of coffee and uh, they, they knew that you were going to be on the show live today. And, you know, if, if you go back and think about the, this, the, it's really a scandal uh, what they did to you uh, what the department of justice did to you. And it, it, it should be revisited, uh, often because, you know, you know, you were, uh, uh, you know, really one of the first political prosecutions. And I think you've been very upfront to say, hey, I, I committed a campaign uh, finance uh, violation. Um, but Dinesh, just just to remind people, can you just walk them through? Because it was really one of the first times, you know, so many people have committed campaign finance violations. And typically, you know, it's a it's a slap on the wrist. But um, you know, this was shortly after. This was when conservatives were being targeted, uh, all during that lowest learner uh, uh, time frame. Just shortly after that, and they just threw the book at you. And you know, you know, at the time, I mean, I, I think I'm even guilty. Not enough of us probably came to your defense for the the the, the level of price that, that you and your family had to pay. And now, of course, it's just gone full. And we'll come back and we'll talk about. Uh, everything that's going on and uh, to Donald Trump. But can you just run through that story again? Uh, sure. It, um, you know, I, um, when I came to the country, came to America at the age of 17, I came alone. I, I didn't come with my family. So I was not typical in this regard. And so my close circle of friends were the, were the handful of people that I met at Dartmouth. Uh, and we were part of this little conservative rebel group. And we started our own newspaper. Uh, there was a woman in that group named Wendy Long. And uh, and then she, uh, fast forward now to 2012, uh, and Wendy uh, said to me, hey, Dinesh, I'm thinking of running for the Senate. There's a Dartmouth woman, Kirsten uh, uh, Gillibrand, who's the senator from New York. Uh, I'd like to challenge her. And I said, Wendy, you're not experienced in politics. This is going to be very difficult. New York State is liberal. You need to raise a giant amount of money. I don't think this is a good thing to do, but if you decide to do it, I'll do what I can to help you. So she decided to run and I I maxed out. I gave her $10,000, which is allowed under the campaign finance uh, rules. Uh, and then I released my film on Obama and I was all over the country promoting it. But Wendy kept calling me. She's like, hey, Dinesh, you know, can you come speak at this event I'm doing in Scarsdale? Hey, Dinesh, you know, I know these seven Indian doctors, you know, they're Indian, you're Indian. Can you come to this dinner and hopefully they'll donate to my campaign? And I felt kind of bad that I wasn't able to deliver the goods for Wendy. So I was thinking, OK, well, how can I help her? So I called up a couple of friends and told them, hey, listen, do you like Wendy Long? OK, give her $10,000 and I'll reimburse you. Now, that's something I should not have done. Um, and people go, why do you do it, Dinesh? And I'm like, well, I really felt obligated. And second of all, although I've been in the political world, I've been in the think tank side and the idea side. I don't run campaigns. I'm not like sophisticated about that kind of stuff. So anyway, I got looped into this dumb thing. I shouldn't have done it, obviously. But but then they come to me and they go, well, Dinesh, should you exceed the campaign finance law? And I go, yeah, but I didn't do it in a corrupt way. I wasn't trying to get a benefit for myself. I wasn't trying to buy a judgeship. There's no quid pro quo. And moreover, I didn't even tell Wendy. So this is not even a case where the candidate even knew about it. But as you say, they they found a pretext to go after me. 
and um, and they did, you know. And so it was a very eye-opening experience for me. Uh, I realized early on that look, there the way to look at this is that it's not just that they're trying to quote get me; they want to take me out politically. They want to diminish or, de or destroy my influence. So if at the end of this, if I come out of this uh, and uh, nobody invites me to speak and I can't publish a book anymore and I can't make a movie, they've won. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if I come out of this uh, and I've got a career bigger than when I went in, then I win. So I understood right away, this is not even about incarcerating Dinesh or fining me. It's ultimately about whether they are successful in destroying my career and my influence. And I wanted to make sure that, that they would not be able to do that. So in retrospect, I think I was able to beat them in the sense that my career is just fine. Uh, and second, of course, the presidential pardon from Trump helped coming in at the very end, clearing out my record, restoring all my rights. And um, uh, But as you say, there's been a massive escalation since then uh, of lawfare uh, against uh, conservatives, Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Michael Flynn, of course, now Trump. So uh, my case in that sense was relatively small compared to these other ones, but it was perhaps the beginning. Yeah. And just so pe people know, I mean, you you were incarcerated and, you know, I'd you know been around politics, you know, my my whole life. Uh, and, you know, you know, Every campaign, it seems like there, there's some campaign finance scandal. Dinesh, I, I can't say this for sure, but I think you're the only person I know that was ever incarcerated uh, for a campaign finance uh, violation. I don't, I don't well, know of anyone else. Certainly for a campaign finance violation of $20,000, first time offense, no corruption. Now, there are campaign guys who have gone to jail but they're, in, they're involved in, A, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Second of all, in almost every case, they've done it before. And third of all, they're always trying to get something, like they want right. a tax break. And so they tell the candidate, listen, you know, if I get you this money, you have to vote for my tax break. So that's really what the campaign finance laws were passed to do, is to prevent this kind of quid pro quo, which is in effect a disguised form of a bribe. Right, because there is the question on whether or not, and this has long been debated over whether these campaign finance restrictions are even constitutional. This has been a, a debate in, in Congress for a long time. And the fact that you're exactly right, a lot of times they find a quid pro quo and then the campaign finance violation ends up being the very last thing that they can't you know, get them on the bribery or, or, or other charges. Um, and, and look, you, you, the, the book was uh, thrown at you uh, for very uh, for a very small amount of of money in terms of campaign uh, finance violations, but you know let's contrast that. And I've been I've been pointing this out to to people when we talk about the 2020 uh, campaign. Uh, the one thing that's just been swept under the rug. And, and Dinesh, I I I just use this example. I've been using this example because in conservative circles, um, everybody remembers Sheldon Adelson. He was. Uh, of course, self-made billionaire, a good friend of mine. I'm sure. I'm sure uh, a friend of yours because he was just so close to so many conservatives across the country. But he was known as a a Republican's Republican. He did not support Democrats. He he ever he made that well known. Uh, he was the largest donor for many many uh, years to to you know Repub you know going back to to you know the Bushes to even John McCain to Romney to. Uh, uh, to Donald Trump, of course. And, you know, if, if, if he would have written a check um, in 2016 to nonprofits around the campaign finance rules for, say, $420 million, um, and it went into just the swing states and the swing counties to do vote harvesting, um, Dinesh, I think Sheldon Adelson would have been tracked down by the FBI, investigated, uh, and prosecuted. Just my opinion. That really did happen, though, Dinesh, in 2020. A guy named Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, who's now, I don't know, growing, uh, raising cattle or something in, in, in Hawaii, in, in his new home in Hawaii. Dinesh, 400 and I... And 20 million and change, I think, was the, was the number that we know just to that one uh, nonprofit. Um, swayed the election and nothing's happening to him. 
No, nobody even looked at it. No, I think when we think back to 2020, and you know, of course, I did the film 2000 Meals, that was only one dimension of it. The unleveling of the playing field, which was done by the left, occurred in multiple ways. Uh, one is using the pretext of COVID to change the rules. Uh, the second is Zuckerberg was able to gain infiltration into the election offices of key counties where his guys were, in, in a sense, running the show, a part of running the show. Right. That uh, was in, and that was in, uh, was that in uh, Milwaukee? No, well, it was in Wisconsin, yes. It, it was, was in Wisconsin, yeah. It was yeah. in a number of the Wisconsin counties. Mm -hmm. and um, Right, where and, this, uh, and just to explain that, that was a, there was, there was numerous examples, but one was really egregious where you had this nonprofit worker that ended up with keys to the elections office, right? Exactly. And there were memos saying, basically, don't start the counting till he gets there, right? <laughs> this, this guy from an activist group is, not, is running the election. Um, and then you have, of course, the, the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, which involved a lot of players. Of course, it yep. involved the, the media. It involved the, the Hillary campaign. Um, I mean, think about it. You've got a meeting in the White House with Obama uh, and these key officials, and they are making decisions about how to get Trump. Um, and so this is election interference at a, an unbelievable level. Uh, yeah. Much of the truth of it is now out. But what is not followed upon the truth is any real accountability. Um, no, they haven't even taken away the clearances of those intelligence officials who quite right. obviously conspired together to yeah. help get Joe Biden across the finish line. And, and that was orchestrated by the current Secretary of State and former high-ranking CIA official who I think you know, was, was vying to be the CIA director, uh, Mike Morell. I believe it was uh, those two that uh that did that scandal that you're exactly right was just a ext extension of the russia hoax is just 16 all that investigation everything we had even though there was john durham and then the fbi and doj basically uh along with these 51 uh intelligence uh, officials uh right before the election uh pull off another stunt uh to get trump right before the 2020 election I mean, it's been a the reason I, in some ways, I'm even a little grateful that all this happened to me was because I think I had a very um, naive view of American politics. By the way, not atypical of immigrants who come to America, experience the American dream. I wrote books called What's So Great About America, titles like that. And until I had my case with the Obama uh, Justice Department and the Southern District of New York, I didn't really see the extent of the gangsterization of politics, particularly on the left side of the aisle. And so my whole political trajectory has, in a way, shifted. My tone has shifted. Some of my old colleagues at the American Enterprise, well, what happened to Dinesh? He seems, you know, uh, well, what happened to Dinesh is simply that I recognize that American politics is not what I once thought. It's not a debating society in which two camps put forward their arguments wide-eyed before the American people, and the American people go, oh, we'll choose this side, and next time maybe we'll go with that side. Uh, no, there's a kind of seedy underside to it, and that is also part of America, and that needs, needs to be factored in and needs to be part of the education of Republicans, because a lot of times we think, you know, we can't be like them, we're the party of principle, we're better than that, Dinesh, uh, and it is our passivity that provokes their aggression. Yeah. And, you know, you look at uh, what's, you know, just transpired, um, you know, from going back, you know, it's really Obama, I think, that really put the, that, that, that undermined the justice system. Um, and it's just continually gotten, gotten worse. Um, and, and when I say undermine, undermined it for the, infiltrated it with activists for the left, um, for the Democratic Party. Um, and nothing's worse. You don't have a country if you don't have a, a fair and equal justice system. Um, and that gets me to, because, I mean, we can't, <laughs> we can't uh, uh, talk this week, Dinesh, without, I think, one of the biggest scandals uh, in modern political history. And that is with the um, case in Georgia uh, led by uh, Fannie Willis, uh, who I believe was a Soros-funded uh, campaign when she became uh, attorney was out was set out to get Trump 
Uh, now we find that uh, she has a, a boyfriend. And that boyfriend happens to have gotten one of the largest contracts uh, in, in history. He's an outside uh, counsel um, who happens to be leading the uh, investigation, one of the top prosecutors going after Donald Trump, who also happens to be meeting in the White House. Um, you, you, I mean, you just can't believe this. So, Dinesh, I want to I'm going to play a video uh, on a news report on this uh uh, on these accusations, and then I'm going to get your thoughts coming back. Right, accusations of an improper relationship between Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and a lawyer she hired to prosecute former President Trump here in Georgia. The allegations include claims of lavish trips together, reportedly played, paid for with money received from the DA's office. Atlanta News First political reporter Doug Reardon live tonight outside of the Fulton County Courthouse downtown. And Doug, the defendant who filed this is saying it is grounds for throwing the entire case out. Right, guys, that would be Michael Roman. He is a former Trump campaign official whose attorneys filed that motion just yesterday. Even the former president called for these cases to be dropped uh, in a speech earlier today. And also in that paperwork, that accusation also includes uh, a sum of more than $1 million that was paid to that special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, over his three years on this case. New allegations laid out in a brand new court filing are threatening the very existence of the historic Fulton County election indictment. Despite numerous attorneys with ample experience prosecuting RICO cases, the filing reads, Willis chose to appoint her boyfriend, who has little to no experience trying felony cases. That man is Nathan Wade, a private defense lawyer who, according to the Monday filing, was taking Willis on and paying for vacations across the world with Fulton County taxpayer dollars authorized by Willis herself. Wade was brought on as a special prosecutor in November 2021 to lead the grand jury investigations that eventually led to charges. Between then and December 2023, the Fulton County DA's office, according to the paperwork, paid him an estimated $1 million. All the while, the filing says Willis and Wade traveled to Napa Valley, Florida, the Caribbean, and on several cruises together. Wade's contract as the special prosecutor began one day after he finalized a divorce in Cobb County. It certainly is a huge problem if true, and I think that's important to emphasize if true. Anthony Kreiss, a law professor at Georgia State, says what the motion is missing is concrete evidence. I think they'll have to produce some kind of evidence. Um, mainly, I think we'll see evidence in the form of witness testimony, if anything. Still, the news left former president and Georgia indictment defendant Donald Trump calling for the dismissal of the case altogether. It's illegal. What you did is illegal. So we'll let the state handle that. But and the motion also accuses Willis of failing to get proper approval before entering that contract with Wade from Fulton County officials, as it says she is required by law to do. When we reached out to them yesterday, they had no comment directly, but they said they would be responding to these allegations in a court filing of their own eventually. We're outside the Fulton County Courthouse, Doug Reardon, Atlanta News First. And knew it's sick. Well, Dinesh, $1 million. I think that's... Um... I guess the only thing we don't know is, are they really sleeping and traveling together? But I, but the, the $1 million, I mean, that that's a fact. That's a fact. And now, you know, I don't think, I doubt it would seem very odd for this fellow Roman to make these accusations uh, if they didn't have some solid basis for it. My guess is that they hired some private investigators and they started looking at what's going on here. And I mean, I find it a little hard to believe that Fannie Willis would be so reckless as to do this because she's prosecuting the largest RICO case in history. Her target couldn't be a bigger one, the former president of the United States and the guy who's running next year. And this could blow the whole thing up. Um, mm -hmm. This could blow up her career because if, as if true, like the guy said, but but it seems like it is likely to be true. And, and it, this is not the kind of stuff that's easy to hide. Either they did or did not go on cruises together. If they went on cruises together, I mean, there's a roster of people who go on the cruise and it's by and large available generally to, the, to everybody who's on the cruise. So maybe they had separate rooms. Maybe they were just working on the case, you know, going to Napa Valley, sipping on some wine, discussing uh, business. Right. But you've got, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that is the, the, let's put it this way. It's not even the point that, that, that they're a romantic couple. 
it is the point that she is get, is funneling this big contract to a buddy, to a personal buddy who's not mm-hmm. really particularly qualified to try this case. And she's right. doing it with a benefit accruing to herself. So I think that those parts of it would be undeniable if the facts as asserted in this complaint can be substantiated. Yeah, and the irony that this is that her charge, you reminded me because I forgot that she used RICO statute to target uh, Trump. This uh, appears to be, you know, pretty damn good case for RICO if all of this is true. Um, It's another case of whatever they accuse you of doing, they're doing themselves. Well, I I think the point is that if you look at the, the Trump, the case against Trump, it's unbelievably flimsy. What did he do? Uh, He questioned the Georgia election. He made a call to Raffensperger. Um, He demanded that they make certain types of recounts. Uh, And so what is that? It's a conspiracy to overturn the election? No, that seems to be part of the normal political process of challenging something when you don't believe that the outcome. So they have the heavy burden of showing somehow that Trump, quote, knew the election was stolen, knew that the election was legitimate, but nevertheless, uh, for reasons unknown, continued to press the matter. So the, the the case against Trump is the ordinary guy cannot get a handle on it. What did Trump really do? Did he, he shoot somebody? Did he get money? Did he What did he do? Uh, mm-hmm. The leftists can't tell you. Now, on the other hand, look at Fannie Willis. What did she do? Well, it's very easy to say. So, so this is a case where it's, um, I think, much easier to pin a charge against Fannie Willis than it is to pin a charge against Trump. Yeah, and then it's the classic uh, case, the same problem that we had investigating the Russia hoax is um, who, who prosecutes the prosecutors? I mean, that's really the challenge here. I mean, do we think that Merrick Garland and and his uh, band of uh, uh, goons at the FBI, are they going to raid uh, the the Fulton County DA uh, tomorrow? I mean, if it, I guarantee you, if it was, let's just say, I don't know, West Texas somewhere, uh, I think that Garland and uh, and uh, FBI would be out there in a, in a nanosecond if they had put a million dollars to a lawyer. They were maybe sleeping together to prosecute, um, you know, a, a Democrat uh, operative. I think they'd be on it, on the case, wouldn't they? Absolutely. I, I think we've just got to realize, and this was an important theme in the in the film I made, Police State, that, that when you're dealing with this kind of a gangsterized operation, the DOJ, um, even pointing out to their double standards doesn't really work because they don't even think like that. Uh, they think a little bit more like the mafia. And that is, who are our friends and who are our enemies? So it's almost like we as conservatives go, wait, you're treating your your friends better than your enemies. And they go, duh, uh, that's how all gangsters operate. We've got friends uh, and that's people like Fannie Willis. And then we've got enemies and that's people like Ken Paxton and the Republicans. So, of course, we uh, we make a distinction. Uh, We're sort of like the the dog. Uh, that is friendly toward the people who live in the house and barks angrily at outsiders. Uh, And that's the approach taken by the Biden DOJ. So I've even dropped my kind of expectation because in the past, I think DOJs would do something like this, but at least they would have a facade. At least they would be like, okay, we're going to try to be even handed. We're going to give the give the try to give the public impression that we're being impartial. Interestingly, with the Biden DOJ, they don't even bother. Right, exactly. Um, I want to switch gears here because I do want to get to this uh, California uh, latest uh, fiasco, the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco weighing in on on uh, the situation in Israel where you know, over 1,200 Israelis uh, were murdered. And uh, now, you know, you got leftists all over the uh, all over the, the country now, uh, you know, showing up at, and disrupting, uh, uh, you know, even a I think even recently uh, a funeral that uh, Joe Biden was uh, was attending. So the Democrat Party is really dividing over this issue of which makes them there's this there's this wing of this pro Hamas wing of the Democratic Party. Um, And of course, Dinesh, no surprise, you lived in California, um, just like me. And the San Francisco Board of Supervisors uh, takes it upon themselves to inject themselves into international policy. 
interesting place for the Board of Supervisors to be, but I want to play a short clip and get your opinion on it. So Dinesh, I was on Citizens Free Press, um, a great uh, contributor on uh, the True Social platform. Um, I'm thankful for them for for finding that video. I, I mean, I shouldn't be shocked, but and I assume you aren't you aren't either. Well, I mean, the first thing I noticed just looking at the video is virtually everybody is wearing a mask. Uh, obviously, the, the the scene is almost in the time warp, right? It looks I like did, I didn't I didn't notice that. You're right; they all are wearing masks. Yeah, they're all wearing masks, and and they're not wearing masks. Uh, you know, I mean, there are reasons people wear masks, right? One of them is to camouflage their identity. Antifa people wear masks, for example. Some of the Hamas terrorists themselves wore masks, but these people are apparently wearing masks because of COVID. So, so you have this rather comical scene here. And look, the left thinks like this, you know, the the right really doesn't, which is why we look at these things with a certain uh, measure of both uh, pathos and humor. I remember when I was at Dartmouth, for example, there were earnest meetings conveyed by leftist groups to denounce apartheid in South Africa. I mean, think about this. You've got some Dartmouth students in the woods of New Hampshire getting together and and they would be unbelievably well-informed, like, like, you know, Mr. Sobutu was killed on the streets of Pretoria, you know, and on, on August 23rd. And I'm like, really? First of all, you know, the, the ability of these guys to sort of create um, this sense of international solidarity is impressive in and of itself. Um, yeah. And um, and that's it's the same mentality I see here in San Francisco. They they know that it's not going to have any effect, but it's not about the effect. It's about the theater, the participation this uh, kind of um, this sense that they're ex- exhibiting uh, virtue by uh, taking these stances. Yeah, <laughs> good, good point on the uh, mask. So that was that was really good. I did not even, you know, we've just become. You're exactly right. We've become our, our you know, what would have looked ridiculous five years ago, uh, no longer does anymore. And you think that could be a cl- clip from COVID. Um, and this is meanwhile, you know, after you know Fauci testified this week that you know admitting that the the six foot social distancing was just pure utter bullshit. They just made it up. I mean, that's my term, not uh, not. Well, not I mean, Fauci, look at Francis Collins and the things that he's been admitting. Pretty much the same thing. And mm-hmm. so you've got these these um, guys who are now fessing up that a lot of the rhetoric about follow the science, so that there's unanimity among in the scientific community. None of this was really true. Uh, and um, you know, to me, the the, the the scene that completely captures Fauci is that he realizes, I think this is what happened with, with COVID, is Fauci realized the, the, um, the virus probably came out of the lab. And he goes, whoops, we've been funding this gain-of-function research in the United States, but those labs, the labs over here, are collaborating with the lab over there. This is not good. This is probably all going to blow up in my face. And so we need to say that the, that the virus came out naturally out of a wet market, right? So what does Fauci do? He rounds up some leading virologists in the world and he tells them, even though they're open to both hypotheses, he's like, write a paper supporting my view, that it, it was a natural thing. And these guys go, oh, well, you know what? We're getting major grants out of the NIH and out of the U.S. government. So we better be dutiful soldiers and, and deliver for Fauci. So they do. And then my favorite scene is Fauci has a press conference. He doesn't say, I commissioned a study myself. I told them what to say. They sent me a draft. I made edits. I approved the draft. He goes, oh, I've just come across a paper right here by some of the world's leading virologists. All of this is a, a con that is being put over on the American people. Um, I mean, I guess I should be grateful that we're not such an advanced police state where they don't even have to do that. The, the fact that they have to practice deceit means the police state is not fully established. Like Stalin wouldn't have to do that. He'd just go, the virus came out of a wet market. And if you say otherwise, we're going to beat you over the head and, and lock you up and you'll never be seen again. Uh, and we might get there, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And a good point. And, you know, the, the, the best part about the masks is I want them to keep wearing them because I hope they all wear them because, you know, then, you know, when you're you know walking through an airport or 
you know, or getting a cup of coffee or what have you, and somebody walks in with a mask, you know that, uh, you know, it's, you know where they are, you know where they stand. It's like, a, you know, wearing a scarlet letter, right? Just, you know, I'm a leftist. <laughs> Absolutely. And for them to do it now in, in the wake of, uh, you know, everything that comes out, is uh, there's an element of comedy to the whole thing. You can't deny it. And, and I'm actually glad that the, the community of comedians is slowly moving. Uh, they're, they're breaking free of the confines of political correctness and wokedom. And uh, I just yeah. saw this guy on social media and he's like, you know, every time we talk about Western civilization, they tell me that it was racist. And it was, uh, and he goes, well, if you like Western civilization, maybe we need more of that. So this kind of this kind of irreverence, I, I think I think we need a lot more of. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 incredible, Dinesh. You were one of the first, uh, kind of one of the last questions that I want to ask you today. You've been, you know, just great, and, and thank you for for being on uh, today. But um, you were, as I recall, you know, this, I, I just remember you twenty years ago, first hearing you. Um, and I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but you were one of the first. I know you probably weren't the first, but talking about the the how higher education had been overrun by leftists. I mean, you were one of the first people that I, I can remember, um, you know, making the point that they that they you know not only they they, they took over the, the the you know higher education but lower education. Um, and we had something that you don't see very often and that is a congressional hearing by by my good friend uh congresswoman uh, elise stefanik um she actually made an impact uh and i just want to play just a short clip there and uh, get your thoughts on the continued uh, problems in higher ed and dr gay at harvard does calling for the genocide of jews violate harvard's rules of bullying and harassment yes or no it can be depending on the context What's the context? Targeted as an individual. Targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When and it is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Took a little bit, but she resigned. And I don't know, maybe going to replace by uh, Barack Obama. That's what the, the rumor is on the left. Well, uh, number one, you know, I think what happened there, Devin, was that she got, uh, well, the anti-Semitism controversy was strong enough to, to take down Liz McGill at Penn. Mm -hmm. By itself, it would not have taken out Claudine Gay because Claudine Gay is like Obama in this regard. She is as aggressively protected in higher education as Obama is in politics. Think of how hard it would be to take down Obama. Um, Claudine Gay is sort of the female Obama in higher education. So it took two separate storms together, the anti-Semitism storm and the plagiarism storm. If it were just one, she would have survived. But the anti-Semitism storm was basically she's evil and the plagiarism storm was she's stupid. And it took she needed to be both evil and stupid to ultimately be taken out. Yeah. And that ultimately she's no longer the president, but she's still at Harvard and still collecting a pretty sizable. I didn't know that the professors, I don't want to get the wrong number. So, you know, fact check me, uh, you know, if, if I'm wrong, I know the audience will, but I think she's making, uh, uh, you know, nearly like $900,000. Yeah, that's the number I saw. And, and look, I mean, there are universities. This is what I would call the celebrity academic, you know, mm -hmm. for university, um, uh, hires these celebrity academics, there's a kind of an auction for them. 
And and the, the, the comical thing is that she's a celebrity for no, she's like Kim Kardashian. She's a celebrity having accomplished nothing. She hasn't really written an important book. Uh, she's written a handful of articles, many of them, as it turns out now, you know, plagiarized. So she's a, a complete mediocrity, but she's a mediocrity elevated through the most prestigious precincts of American education, right? She went to uh, Phillips Exeter Academy prep school. Uh, she went through Princeton, Harvard, Stanford. So all these venerable institutions have conferred their blessing. And I think this is in some ways a massive indictment, not even so much of Claudine Gay. There are plenty of mediocrities around the place, but of higher education itself. That's partly why they went to bat to sort of protect her is because if, if she turns out to be a fraud and a loser, well, what does that say about all these institutions that conferred the mantle on her? Right. Well, look, and I think there's there's much, Victor Davis Hanson has been talking about this. He was on the show right before Christmas. And, um, and you know, and he's brought up the point that, you know, these, these, these institutions uh, that are, you know, seen as, as very prestigious, the most prestigious, have some of the largest, uh, and he makes the point, especially on, on the, the medical schools, um, you know, these people that are, that are, that are getting into these schools now. Um, and he pointed out, it's not the best and the brightest any longer. And so you've got these med schools that are essentially getting students based on their race, not based on whether or not they're qualified or not. And look, he, he continues to make, uh, he's making the point that, you know, where are the doctors in the, the high level skilled doctors going to be 10 years from now? If we're, if our, if our top medical schools are being filled with people based on, you know, their political, basically their, their, their politics or their race. Well, this is a, a point. I mean, diversity, equity, inclusion, this whole affirmative action industry is bad from top to bottom, but it, its effects are worse in certain areas than others. Uh, obviously, if, if if Starbucks has DEI and you get incompetent baristas, <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is you get a really bad cup of coffee. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, if um, you have affirmative action in medicine uh, or in the airlines, which we're seeing people talk about these days with the... Um, yep. The business with uh, Alaska Airlines and Boeing and even United Airlines, all the loose bolts and screws. The point mm -hmm. being, these these airlines are now in a big way into diversity. Uh, and and look, airline safety isn't just a matter of good pilots. That's part of it. But you need good mechanics. You need good supervision. You need good. You need high quality air traffic control. So when you start hiring people not based on merit but based upon quote diversity. You're setting yourself up and 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 look, what I find so appalling about this is that, you know, airlines sometimes have accidents, but an accident is a kind of unpredictable or unforeseeable event. You did everything you're supposed to do, but let's just say some bolt wore out and you didn't even know about it and have no way of knowing about it. That's an accident. On the other hand, if you have policies that say we're not going to hire pilots based on merit or we're going to we're going to put a competent pilot alongside the DEI pilot because we only need kind of one pilot to really fly the plane. Well, this is then you are setting yourself up for catastrophe. That's not a real accident. That's really criminal negligence, in my view. Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, Dinesh. Um, I want to, we're going to play the police state uh, promo uh, as, as we leave here, but uh, Red Referral Network, Red Referral Network. Uh, Red Referral Network.com and then policestatefilm.net. That's the website for police state. And in fact, it links to being able to order the film and stream it, watch it on Rumble. So uh, policestatefilm.net is the website for the film. Right. And you can follow uh, Dinesh uh, on True Social at Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh, thank you, man. I've really appreciated it. It's been great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. All right. Here's here's Police State and this is Devin Nunes. We'll check catch you next week. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? 
Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. I've never seen anything like it. It may be the Russia other people grew up in, but not my America. FBI warrant, come to the door now! There's a heavy banging at my door. Open up! It's 15 marked units on my property. I got SWAT in the back of my house. It took a battering ram to my door. 6 a.m., I hear boom, boom, boom. And hear about six to eight military-style soldiers with the tallest one of them pointing an automatic rifle at my head fbi we have an arrest warrant shock you out of sleep drag you out of your house half clothes refuse to give you a warrant ransack your house now i'm facing 15 years in federal prison for doing nothing other than exercising my right to free speech i had no reason to be attacked i hope that you remember matt's name and the role you played in killing him how did we give the state this kind of power? 9-11 changed everything. We're going to expand the Bureau from law enforcement to domestic intelligence. Legal shackles are now off. It used to be Islamic terrorism. That threat has kind of dissipated. Our focus is shifting. They're moving to domestic extremism. Really paints anybody who's right of center. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. The demand for domestic terrorism vastly outstrips the supply. When candidate Trump came down the escalators, the government had a meltdown. We are going to drain the swamp. We'll see about that. You take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. Google literally rewrote their news algorithm based upon what Trump was doing so that they could get this guy. You just take out the word Russiagate and you put in COVID origins. You take out COVID origins and you put in Hunter Biden's laptop. You take that out and you put in January 6th. It's the replicated play from the deep state and their partners in the media. They're not just deplatforming you. They are trying to throw people in prison. If they're coming for me, they're coming for you. Hands on your head! These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech! Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Police State. Exclusively in theaters, October 23rd and 25th. Tickets sold only on policestatefilm.net.